Hey nurses, welcome to the Nurse Dot Podcast, giving nurses validation, resources, and hope one episode at a time. Welcome to episode two of this two-part series featuring Cinda Rushton and Brian Dorries. Let's go ahead and pick up where we left off. I say that, you know, one of the things that also early on, and it was a theme that played out throughout, we had a lot of people who, I mean, in our survey results, there were huge numbers of nurses who said, I recently left the profession. Um, and we had a, many raise their hands or that we purposely curated in our panels who had recently left the profession or had tapped out during COVID. And I think for them to hear from other nurses who didn't leave, you're still part of our community, you know. Um, you, sh- you should bear no guilt for saving yourself or serving not just the needs of others, but those of your family or those you love. That was a type of healing that I think was really critical as well. The re-stitching the fabric that had come undone. Um, it's a really good point, Brian. You yeah. Know, the, the idea, and, and this is another theme for me that really started to resonate. You know, we belong here. Like you can belong in this profession, even if you decide the role you're in is not the one for you. There's other ways to serve you know, and that, that we are a community, um, in many, many different ways. And this idea that, that we could still belong, even if we had decided that it was time to take a step back, doesn't need to be permanent. Absolutely. I, you know, for me personally, during, when the pandemic all started and happened, um, I felt this, this pull, this draw. I was like, well, I have to, it's like, I have to enlist kind of thing. Right. Like, and, and suddenly I started to think, well, if I, if I don't, am I, am I abandoning my community? Am I, am, am I not showing up for them? I have seen myself as a leader for a while. I've been cultivating community and support for nurses. And that's been my whole focus. And then I thought, well, who am I if I, if I don't go to the front lines, right? Like if I don't put myself in the, in the trenches with them and there, and there's so many military warlike analogies that you can, you can make, but uh, you know, at the time I decided I'm going to save the nurses. That's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going to focus because I, I knew where we were, and this was even before the pandemic. I we were in danger; we couldn't sustain this profession. And, and so, seeing that now we're in a pandemic, I was like, I, I have to stay in support of the nurses. I can't go to the front line. I have to stay here, and I'm going to continue my focus here. I did some of the first nationwide nurse surveys of nurses during the pandemic. We were on NBC Nightly News talking about this first nationwide nurse survey and what nurses were saying. I have tens of thousands of comments that were written in the survey that were lengthy. We did it during April of 2020. Can you imagine? Can you imagine that survey? And I read these comments, every single one of them. Because I was like, if I can't be there, the very least I can do is read every single message, comment, plea for help, 
because that's going to charge me. It's going to give me the energy to do what needs to be done to try and save them. And I'll never forget, I was talking to a nurse who was a travel nurse and she had traveled back to New York in the very beginning of the pandemic when things were just at their worst, just really bad. And they were being bussed into the hospitals and back to the hotel and to the hospital and back to the hotel. And she was on a bus headed back to the hotel with another nurse who was just kind of had her head in her hands and was crying. And and she said, did you have a really hard day today? And she said, yeah, I, I, I did, but that's not what I'm upset about. She said, I'm going to go back to the hotel and I'm going to talk to my five-year-old and tell and listen to her cry until she falls asleep. Mm. And she said, I wish my kids could forget about me. Mm. And it just like hit me. And I was like, oh my gosh, these are women that have gone off to war. Mm. And it's like almost too painful for them to have to constantly live in two places, Mm. you know, see all that trauma and then come back and listen to their child, miss them and cry for them. And you know, wonder when they're coming home just to the very next day have to go back into it. It's like they almost have to put that, they have to put like the blinders on in order to be able to go into that place and stay in that place. But to go back and forth between being a mother and being a nurse is almost impossible task of anybody. So and this is, yeah, this is what the Greeks knew. Uh, they, they knew that that um, the, so the audience in the ancient amphitheater for Antigone in the fifth century BC would have been citizens and some foreign nationals, uh, all men. So we can talk about that briefly, but uh, except for the high priestesses who sat alongside the generals uh, in the front uh, rows, and it was a hundred percent military service of citizens, compulsory service. So the audience would have all not just been to war. It was a century in which they'd seen nearly eighty years of war. So the fabric of the society hung in the balance of the warrior moving back and forth between being on the battlefront and being a, and a functional member of their family or a citizen. And the Greeks knew that it was not, you know, for all their faults and, you know, there are many, but they knew out of necessity that it was not functional when in the middle of battle to be overwhelmed with emotions. Um, but they also knew and this is where we lack as a culture and a society, there had to be a place in time where those emotions could be processed. And the theater was that place. It was a place of communal and collective healing where permission was given. I actually, I don't want to even say it that way, that, that, that um, the audience was invited and encouraged to bear witness to the truth of their experiences in the company of each other seated according to rank and according to community. So we did this for the military because the military is a great close analog to that ancient audience, but nurses are also, as you just articulated so beautifully, uh, uh, an analog that, that, and there has to be a time and a place for those emotions to be expressed so that the nurse, even in her, in her normal 
forget the pandemic, can move porously between pediatric oncology. I mean, I remember we did a Greek play at um, our end of life project at uh, St. Louis Children's Hospital for the and the pediatric oncologist nurse responded to the play, which was about the Greek hero Heracles who's been poisoned by his wife. And the play shows the poison sort of reducing him in the matter of seconds from the greatest Greek hero to a shell of himself on stage, eating through his flesh. And the nurse said, this reminds me of the children I've seen who have been attacked by flesh-eating bacteria. And I've seen this. I know this. And um, uh, and then one of the questions at the one of the lines at the end of the Greek play that we perform for the nurses at that hospital is um, in Sophocles' play Women of Trachis. My friends, you've seen many strange things, new kinds of torture, immeasurable pain, and all that you've seen here is God. Or in the Greek of Zeus. And so one of the questions I ask audiences is, what do you make of that line? And the pediatric oncologist nurse raised her hand again, and she said, if I didn't see the divine in my exchanges with these children, if I didn't feel that this was sacred, there's no way I could face it every morning and every day. Oh, my God, that's exactly. <laughs> Boy. Yeah. That, that, yeah. I mean, um, so perfectly said and so poetically said, um, and I know I've said something similar, um, you know, not, not exact, but similar where it's like, I know I have to believe, I have to believe that I am in the presence of God. I'm in the presence of something more divine, something divine to make sense of it mm. um, and to move through it. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, you know, it is that, it is that dance that we have, you know, that we think we can't exhale. And I think that was, you know, it's like, we're all holding our breath, trying to manage this, incredible situation that we're all in. And then it, you know, we, we have this idea in our mind that if I just let a little bit out, I'm going to implode. Mm -hmm. And how will I keep coming back if I allow that to happen? And yet I think through the, through the medium of the theater, people are invited into at least a little bit of an exhale to, mm -hmm. to give voice to and to relate to something outside of themselves that allows for a sigh, you know, uh, oh, you know, and I, I think that invitation to reconnect to why we do this work, to me has always been a huge resource, you know, and when you're in crisis, it's hard to connect to that because all you see is the pain and the suffering and the despair and the discouragement. And so in a way, you know, to, to have even a, a, a little moment where you can remember that 
it, it, it gives us the energy to say, okay, well, I'm going to do what I can. And it's not perfect. And it's not maybe what I would choose, but it's what I've got right now. And yeah. being able to, to kind of befriend our limitations rather than criticize ourselves for them. Yeah, that's so huge. I mean, our, we say to, in our, to our actors a number of things. One is we say, anyone who makes a mistake gets a bonus because we're modeling making mistakes and creating a, a space and a culture where we can celebrate and revel on the fact that we can be present with our thoughts in such a way that it feels messy and unedited and like theater, as you'd said in the beginning. Um, we also say, make them wish they'd never come. Not because we want to re-traumatize the audience, but we want to create a, a, a kind of field of energy, not to get too esoteric, but where the nurse's kitchen sink realism is being met by a Greek tragedy that for others feels extreme, but for them feels like naturalism, you know, something they experienced earlier that day. And that that can be really validating um, and also help create a space where it just takes a little less energy to talk about it because the actors have already named it and they've already been as emotional as anyone's going to get in the room. We've already moved the walls of the room back and said, you know, the actors have gone to these places. It's okay to go to those places here because this is the place. Um, so, you know, you said that the play is a cautionary tale. It is a cautionary tale. Um, I would argue that Greek plays are about people making mistakes and often learning too late, usually milliseconds too late. And in those milliseconds, they destroy themselves and their families and generations to come. And we watch these plays not to go home and like make more mistakes. Um, that's a really fatalistic view of why people would go to the theater over and over and over again every every year in the spring in ancient Athens. Um, we go to the theater to raise our consciousness to a place where maybe we have the presence and the self-understanding and the wherewithal to, and, and, and the space that breath that Cinder was talking about to avert disaster before it's too late, to acknowledge our own habits, to, to make a change. But I actually think the real power of Greek tragedy is simply in naming these things and uh, the Antigone in particular for the nursing community is it's um, the, the hope is not in the play. The play is about someone who ultimately dies. And we all agree that she didn't need to die. And it raises all kinds of questions about um, what, why we fetishize the sacrifices of especially women and our culture and the play the, the she says, she calls out to the citizens to help her. And they say, we'll worship you like a goddess after you're gone. And she says, shame on all of you. Not one of you will do anything to save me. And yet you dare to say that you'll worship me. And when you say, I'm coming to say, I'm, I wanted to save the nurses. I feel like one of the ways we have to save the nurses is not by fetishizing them or worshiping them, but acknowledging that we all make mistakes and getting down in the trenches and the mess of those mistakes with them and saying, well, the blood's on our hands too. Hey there, nurses and nursing students. We know your job isn't just a profession. It's a calling. Now, with Nurse.com, your nurse life is all in one place. Imagine a world where career opportunities are tailored to your skills, where you can find peer support in the Nurse.com app, the only networking site built specifically for nurses. Continuing education, events, peer support, and jobs? What more can you ask for? Ready to take the leap into a role that is truly yours? 
Check out nurse.com forward slash jobs today. Yeah, that's, you know. that's really, that's really, I think, Brian, the intersection of serving nurses by creating spaces for, for discovery of who they are and what they carry, but also to, to really take on this question of our relationship to the people we serve and them to us. Yeah. That includes the patients and families, but it also includes our leaders and society and the organizations where we practice. And why is it that um, in a way, many of those structures have corrupted the commitment that nurses have to their patients in order to serve their goals. And I think that is is part of why having the public witness what nurses do and how they how they serve and what they sacrifice in order to do that is part of shifting that narrative to say this is a bi-directional responsibility it is not just on the most trusted nurses it also involves the people who are the recipients of their knowledge and their skills and their caring. And there are more of them than there are of us. Mm. And if you can get society and the public to rally behind the people who are serving them, the people who are caring for them, the the nurse.com mission is to measurably improve the lives of the most vulnerable in society and those who care for them. Mm. That's our mission. And we cannot measurably improve the lives of the most vulnerable in society if those very people do not understand what their caregivers are facing Mm -hmm. and the obstacles that they're facing. And to help them with policy, to create policy for change and to create safe patient staffing and to they are the recipients of this. They are the the one of eight, you know, or the one of ten. And I, I spoke about this with with Michael Bublé when I when I interviewed him during Nurses Week, and he said very profoundly, he said, "What can we do? What can we do to advocate for you, the collective you?" And that is exactly it. It's through education. It's through enlightenment. It's it's through knowledge. It's through compassion and empathy and understanding that you want to advocate, you know, and that's what I think you're offering, Brian and, and Cinda. And I'm just really... um I don't even think I've had a chance to really process even this conversation. I've been like in the moment, Mm. um, but I'm not even sure that I've had a chance to like process everything I'm feeling and thinking and, and planning in my head and, (laughs) um, and, and trying to figure out how I can get this to every person on the planet. (laughs) 
<laughs> including yeah, well, it's the funny, nurses. Funny, funny you should mention that. You know, it's exactly where we are in the process with this particular project. We just finished these 11 performances, one of which is online. You can find it on our YouTube page, the finale. It was live at, at the Green Space in New York City um, and uh, featuring Anthony Edwards and Adipero Duye and Katie Irby from Law and & Order and uh, a chorus of nurses representing uh, a variety of perspectives. And, a, and an audience full of nurses sitting alongside citizens who came to be in dialogue with them. And you see modeled, and then a, a global audience, um, you know, 15 or 16 countries represented online that are all tuning in and being brought into that space. And you see the model in the flesh. If you don't believe us, you can just watch the video, those of you listening, and hopefully that's just a lot more uh, helpful, I think, than hearing us talk about it. But we are actively looking for brave sound ethical leaders who are risk averse and willing to help us take the project to scale within institutions and outside of them. But I do think that, thank you for signing up. I appreciate that, Karen. I think, <laughs> I think the, the challenge is, um, you know, for instance, in the military, there were about 15 generals ultimately, including the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff and his wife who championed our work after General Sutton, I mentioned uh, Lori Sutton, uh, sent his friend who took the idea to scale uh, that first year. But for every general that didn't, who did want to go to scale, there was at least one general who didn't because of how threatening sometimes it can be to leaders to feel unsafe, that they're, that they're not in charge, that we're creating these leaderless environments. What could people say? And so we have to find those who are willing to take the risk, but also know that the risk is necessary in order to create and generate the healing that has to happen. The other really, the thing I just want to say is that it's been really exciting to be with nurses over this 15 month period. Um, we had a number of people who were in nursing school at the beginning of the journey who had done a full year of working in emergency rooms by the end, who came to every performance and participated in the discussion. And um, it felt like we were meeting nursing where it was as it evolved um, over that 15 month, extremely accelerated period of change within nursing. And the voices we were hearing at the end, and these are on display at the video that's online in our YouTube, Theater Board Productions YouTube channel, are voices, not just of speaking truth to power, but voices of progress and change and a, a full-throated articulation of the need for change and what has to change. And it was powerful and exciting to even be a small part of that process and to be a platform for nurses to express that to a larger public. We got a few articles in the New York Times and the AP in the beginning that amplified, but there's more to be done. Obviously, we've scratched only the beginning surface of what's out there in terms of the nurses we could be engaging. So we're grateful. I'm grateful to you and nurse.com for yeah. giving us an opportunity. Thank you. And Carol, the other piece on the public, um, you know, as Brian knows, um, you know, I get a bee at my bonnet and I'm not letting it go. Um, so because of this sort of frayed social fabric, as Brian described it, we wrote a piece uh, in the Hastings Center blog of when there are no more nurses. And that generated quite a response, both by nurses, but also the public, and led to a collaboration with AARP and Susan Reinhart to create a 10 things the public can do to support nurses. 
as a way to begin to give some specifics about, you know, starting first with knowing what nurses do, not these idealized caricatures of us, but the real, you know, skill, competence, innovation, you know, that nurses bring. So I think there's many different, you know, sort of pathways here in this process, not only about engaging nurses, but also, you know, what would it look like if, if we really truly had the public as our ally and who we could stand together with to be able to say no more, this is not working. It's not working for patients or families or the people who are trying to deliver care. So, um, you know, We'll see what happens. Kara, uh, forgive me for being impulsive, um, but I actually think the next step would be for you to join either the chorus uh, or, and I, I say that I knew that eventually if we called something the nurse Antigone, eventually we'd have a nurse Antigone that at some place, maybe given your emotional presence and your facility with language, you play Antigone for us for a large audience. So you heard it here first, listeners. <laughs> uh, oh my gosh, I would. It would be maybe my greatest honor. Okay, well, the offer stands. <laughs> we'll find a place and a time. And um, this is how casting happens with Theater of War Productions. By the way, we don't audition. We just <laughs> sense what's right. <laughs> well, uh, it, it, honestly, like what what an honor what a what a privilege and and thank you for for offering it to me i i would absolutely um take that take on that role and and i hope that um i do it the service that you know it deserves so all right we'll we'll find it we'll find the opportunity and we'll stay in touch okay all right all right well i have kept you so long the both of you but, and I, I probably, I may even have to make this into a part one, part two, because it's so good. It's just, it's such a good, it's such a good episode that I'm like, oh my gosh, I think I, we might have to have a part one, part two. Um, it's, it's so good. And everything that the both of you said, even just in this podcast, I think uh, will provide so much healing and hope you know we this podcast i don't know if you you know but we we started by saying providing nurses with validation resources and hope one episode at a time mm-hmm. because the pathway to healing you know you have to start with validation right like you have to validate people's experiences and that is exactly yeah what you're doing Brian in, in the most eloquent of ways and creative of ways. And so I'm just people are, so people are grateful. often put off by the idea of tragedy, you know, and, and they hear it and they, I mean, they're, I'm put off by it. If someone put a sign up saying Greek tragedy being read, even I might not go. Um, but um, because they think there's no hope. Um, but I would argue like we were taught wrong in high school or those of us who had the privilege of reading Greek plays. Uh, sometimes it's better to w- work with audiences who've never heard a Greek place. So we don't have all the baggage and it's just a mm-hmm. direct experience. That's where sometimes mm-hmm. education can be an impediment to direct experience. Yeah. But um, p- 
people always ask me, where's the hope in these ancient tragedies? And I say, the hope isn't in the place. The hope is in the audience that comes together to bear witness to the truth that's spoken in the place. Yeah. And that validation is that that's the, that's the beginning of, as you say, the path, the infinite path to healing that can come out of that recognition that I'm not the only person on the planet who's ever felt this way, not just in my community, not just across the country and the world, but across time. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Yeah. God, thank you. Thank thank you so much. Cinda, thank you. Thank you for making this introduction. Thank you, Bonnie Barnes, for introducing me to Cinda. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Brian, for just being willing to be just on this journey to show up. I mean, you're well, just showing up. I can't say I would have shown up if I hadn't had Cinda after me for so long. But, but <laughs> like he was like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to do something so she will stop. <laughs> well, there you go. I mean, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, Cinda, and that's that, what you, you did. Know? No, I mean, Squeaky really actually Cinda got the Brian <laughs> all, all, all joking aside. I mean, you know, not to hero worship or fetishize nurses, but I, you know, as I mentioned very offhandedly early, I, I lost someone I love to cystic fibrosis and was on every service in the hospital as a caregiver, as a young person in 20, 25, 26 years old at the time. And it was, it was apparent to me when I was in my mid twenties as a caregiver, especially with the hospice and palliative care, but across the services that that nurses had insights that could heal us all and that they were marginalized and silenced and that it was at our own detriment as a society that we couldn't hear their insights and that's sort of where the end of life project started what's that who was the person to you oh her name was laura rothenberg and she wrote a book called breathing for a living and there's a beautiful radio diary on npr called my so-called lungs these are things people can find very easily she was a writer and we were writers together and she had cystic fibrosis and had a double lung transplant. And in her, uh, this is in 2000, uh, essentially 2001, 2002 when she has the, and then died in 2003, 20 months post-operatively uh, in our apartment in the East Village where I, I live. I don't live in the same apartment, but in the East Village. And, and um, it was a crash course for me in medicine and caregiving and um, being pushed past my limits um, in moral distress and maybe even moral injury, although I didn't have any of those words. And I would argue, and it took me a hundred performances of doing this work a few years later when I started doing it in hospitals and then military and prison and then all these other places that really I was just, I, I was doing it for myself. I didn't know that, but I needed to create the conditions where people would talk about the things that I'd experienced, including death, especially death. Um, because for me, death wasn't the death, uh, the, the death, the death I witnessed was not dispiriting. It was an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And I felt like if we didn't talk about the opportunity around death, yeah, that we were missing the greatest gift 
that we've been offered as as mortals. Yeah. And um and so creating spaces where people would talk about it without the intervention of drugs or alcohol, without, you know, long yogic practice, like that people would just go into these places and they would open up after hearing a 40 minute reading from an ancient text. It, it was, it was as much for me as it was for them. And wow. so, you know, uh, and Cinda knows this too, because every time we do one, it, it gives us more energy than, mm-hmm. Than it takes. Yeah. You know, my wife uh, lost both of her siblings to cystic fibrosis, oh, which is why I asked. And I yeah. actually just recently interviewed her mother, who is 92, um, about the experience of caring for two terminally mm-hmm. ill children. Yeah. I recently um, interviewed my wife about being a sibling in a house where you could feel unseen. Mm. If you weren't dying, mm. um, if you weren't terminally ill. Yeah. And so I, I love to dig into the topics. Like yeah. I, I like yeah. to, I like to pick <laughs> the scab a little bit. I, yeah. I, I'm, yeah, I like yeah. to pick the scab and then <laughs> kind of dig around in the wound. Yeah. Yeah. Little, yeah. yeah so know, it's sort but, of what we do, I guess. Yeah. We don't, we don't advertise it, but you yeah, know, cystic fibrosis. So, um, uh, you know, uh, well, we, it's another episode, but, yeah, but uh, we're episode, about to publish yeah. Laura's poetry, uh, 20 years later, her mother and I, and, uh, it's called when poetry visits, it'll come out in the fall. It was Laura's dying wish that her poetry be published. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, the title of the collection when poetry visits ours and ours poetica is about the relationship between poetry and cystic fibrosis for her, her illness and her creative output. And Can I read the- it? Oh, of on, course. On, so I would love to, we have a, a, a segment we call the dot spot and we yeah. don't put it into every episode, but we do put it into certain episodes. Yeah. I would love to do a dot spot where I read her poetry, both in my wife's episode and oh, great. her mom's episode, yeah. if that would be. Yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, okay. I'll send you the, um, the e-galley. And I don't know, we don't have a pub date quite yet, but um, but I also send you a link to her book, Breathing for a Living, which was published by Hyperion in 2000, just after her death. I, she yeah. wrote the last chapter on her, on her deathbed. Yeah, I would love that. I would um, love that. Well, but it's amazing how COVID has made CF uh, way more relevant in a, as a respiratory illness, where I think a lot of CF patients felt very marginalized. And now everyone's had a respiratory illness that, and they, and they kind of know what it is to be like, you know, fearful of air hunger or, you know, um, see people uh, and walking around with masks on, walking around with masks and knowing that, because that was the, that was the real thing for Laura, you know, the, 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 how inventively cruel cystic fibrosis was to those patients in the nineties, early nineties, who, um, up until a certain point, we're all in the same ward together in the hospital and formed families and communities and bonds. And then because of a certain bacteria, uh, Sapatia yeah. were told they couldn't see each other anymore and, and be in each other's presence. And there wasn't zoom obviously. And, um, so, yeah. and then she lost all 25 of her closest friends and she was the last one. Yeah. Um, but she had to write their story. That's what she told me. She survived to write the story. So she wrote breathing for a living. And then she did this radio diary. That was a driveway moment. I think of 2001 or 2002, um, on NPRs, all things considered, and when you hear it, and I'll send that link too, you'll hear her voice 
and she records herself and her breathing and her voice moments mm-hmm. after she awakes from wakens from having double lung transplant, which no one thought she'd make it to. Um, so of course, without oh my Laura, gosh. It, I- I could talk to, to the both of you all day. I mean, honestly, I think I'd just like tell everybody like, no, I think I'm just going to stay on this call and you know, the rest. <laughs> anyway, I'll send you the links. And you know what's, really, what's really interesting. And Brian, I don't even think you know this, you know, I started out in, in pediatrics when I was a nursing student, I worked on the ward with patients with cystic fibrosis. Mm-hmm. It was the first death I witnessed. It was the same thing. Many families had two children, one in each bed, doing chest percussion, trying to, you know, help help them breathe. It 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 it's such an interesting connection, you know, of how that disease teaches us about living. Yeah, no. just breathe, so, like breathing, just breathing, you know, yeah. I don't know. There's just something about, uh, yeah, I, I I, know. And I feel like, boy, we should just all have a drink one day and <laughs> sit down and just really dig into like what that is, like what, yeah. why are we experiencing, you know, that thread that is even just running through yeah, the, the the three of us, and then my wife is the producer. Yeah, I don't know if you know this, but she is an Emmy award winning sound person. She's won an Emmy for her work, and uh, she produces this podcast. She That's does great. the sound and the music and everything around it, and and uh, and so I, I she's not here, but she's here. <laughs> Uh, she'll hear it <laughs> and, and she will certainly hear it i almost don't want to surprise i'm gonna surprise her i'm gonna uh, like, let her listen to it take a listen to this um, um that's so great yeah but i just want to say a- i just want to say thank you because well for one if i don't get a proper goodbye from you even if you don't leave she'll kill me she'll be like kara how did you talk to these people for so long and you didn't get a proper goodbye yeah. <laughs> 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 well um, so what does that look like? A proper goodbye is really just, you know, thank you, Cinda. Thank you, Brian, for joining, for being with me today, for sharing all of this. And I cannot wait to talk to you again and to explore future opportunities. Thank you, Kara, for uh, you. hosting us and um, I've, I've done a number of podcasts. It's really nice to be in a conversation that really feels like one, um, where the host is so present. Um, it's been, it's been a really great experience and exchange. I'm excited for your listeners to hear it. And then for us to be able to engage with them. And I'm excited for you to play Antigone. Me too. <laughs> he doesn't give up either. <laughs> That's why we probably hang out (laughs) because we're both unrelenting. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I'll let you guys enjoy the rest of your day. And, uh, and I will be traveling to new Orleans. 
uh, tomorrow to speak at the nurse power brunch. That's where I will be, um, this, this weekend, uh, with some 300 incredible nurses. Um, and I can't wait to talk about some of what we talked about today. Yeah, so make sure to chorus, send me. Let us know. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. Yes, yes, maybe, yes. maybe among them are the nurses, nurse leaders who need to step up now. Yeah. Yep. Oh, I'll be looking for them. Don't think I won't. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. You. We'll look forward to hearing, hearing more. Sounds good. All right. Okay. Take Come good on. care. Bye. Bye, Brian. All my love. Bye. All okay. my love. Okay. Bye. Bye. If you are a nurse who enjoyed this episode and you have an idea for future episodes, you can connect with me by downloading the nurse.com app. Nurse.com is a nurse.com original podcast series. Production, music, and sound editing by Don Lunsford. Production coordination by Rhea Wade. Additional editing by John Wells. Thank you to all the listeners for tuning in to the Nurse Dot Podcast. Until next time, keep spreading the love and the care.